Heavenly Father, we ask that your name be glorified. We ask that your word might be honoured within our congregation. And indeed, we pray that your word might be honoured amongst your saints worldwide. Prepare our hearts now to receive from your word. I pray that by your grace, you might overcome my shortcomings and my inabilities to speak from your word. I pray that if anything that I say is in error, that it might fall to the ground. Help us today to consider how your word might be calling us to greater faithfulness. Conform us wholly to your will, so that from the outermost fingertip to the deepest recess of our heart, that all our attitudes might be pleasing in your sight. Amen. I'd like to start this morning by asking the question, are you serving Christ? Are you serving Christ? Yes, you might be on the church service roster. You might be doing this and that. You might be involved in X and Y and Z. But the question is, are you serving for Christ? Or are you serving for yourself? Jesus sent shockwaves through the religious community of his day. He had come and he had preached a righteousness that was more radical than anything that they had previously seen. And today, even as we read his words, we're still struck by the wow factor of it. And that which is regenerate within us looks at the beautiful picture of righteousness that he paints and says, that is the kind of person that I want to be. And that which is unregenerate within us looks at the beautiful picture of righteousness that Jesus paints and says, that is the kind of person I want to be seen to be. The difference is subtle, and, and the outworking of those attitudes might be nearly identical, but the difference is very great. And these desires might even coexist within us at the same time, but they're intrinsically different desires. And, and God Almighty, who sees our very heart, who desires truth in the inward being, he sees the desires for what they are. One is good and upright and pleasing and noble in his sight, and will receive his reward. The other is a mockery, and it will receive nothing. So we asked this morning, what is the desire that is playing out in your life? What is the desire that is driving your service? Unfortunately, even when we begin with the former noble desire, the desire that is pure and upright, the desire that seeks only to bring glory to the king... It's very easy for this desire to be contaminated by the persisting corruption of our flesh. Our flesh desires to serve ourselves. Our flesh desires the approval of men. I pray this morning that this passage uh, might perhaps convict you as it's convicted me this morning, uh, this week, that by the mercy of our God, his word might shine a light, a purifying light into the recesses of our hearts. It is a blessing, albeit a sometimes painful blessing, to be searched by the word of God. But I pray this morning that the vine dresser might prune us and might cut out all that is rot. As we come to this passage of scripture, uh, firstly we come to verse 1 and we see that it acts as a bit of a summary statement. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. To unpack this statement, then, Jesus chooses three examples of religious observance, giving, praying, and fasting. 
With each one, he describes how it can so easily be corrupted by our egos. He tells us exactly what reward the religious hypocrite will get for all their religious showmanship. And finally, Jesus tells us how to practice our religion in a way, a very practical way, whereby our actions are guarded from from the temptation to self-glorification. This is the basic structure of the the passage that you'll observe with with three sections. Uh, You'll note, however, that when Jesus turns his attention to prayer, he follows this structure up until verse 6, and then he diverts from the structure and he, he expands on prayer. We struggle so much with prayer. It is, it is not second nature to us like some people would want to assume. Um, and so Jesus further expands and explores that area and gives us uh, what has come to be known as the Lord's Prayer or the Lord's Model of Prayer. We're going we're gonna to put that as an aside and we're going to cover it on another week. Today we're going to consider uh, this passage in terms of the three forms of religious hypocrisy that uh, Jesus details we're going to look at what that is and how to avoid it. On a subsequent occasion, we will return to the Lord's Prayer and consider that as well. So Jesus begins, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet. I have to say that this would bankrupt most of modern philanthropy. Um, the most successful fundraisers in our days, they don't ask you to give to a cause, they ask to sell you something. And that product is reputation, it's pride, it's public approval. They don't ask you to give to their cause, they ask you to buy, to buy kudos from them. And so you buy a ribbon and you get to pin a ribbon on your shirt that day and everyone knows that you're a good person because you support this or that cause. If you give a little bit more money, uh, you might get your name engraved on a brick or a plaque or or a park bench. Those who are, who are very financially well-off or just very greedy for public acclaim, they might get a whole building uh, named after them. There are some people in this world and uh, they, they desire more social credit than a charity can offer. And so they actually set up a, an entirely new charity, all of its own, in their own honour, in their own name. This is the, the selfish way of fallen man who continually seeks his own honour. And yet we need to ask ourselves the question, how do we behave as Christians aspiring to put off the old man and to live as a new creation? Jesus warns us, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be be praised by others. Last year I enjoyed the opportunity to see Sydney and I remember walking into a very old church in Sydney and seeing the stained glass windows Uh, Stained glass windows served a very important role in their time, portraying pictorially to the people the stories of the Bible. As I walked through the church, I I saw all the stained glass windows, big, tall windows, and at the base of each one, it was written, dedicated to the glory of God by so-and-so. And I walked down the aisle, and window after window, dedicated to the glory of God by so-and-so. Evidently, these were the names of the wealthy benefactors, the the people who had financially funded either the windows or some sort of larger building project within the church. And they'd done so to... uh, For whatever reason, they'd done so. They'd managed to get their name in there as well. I found it interesting that that was actually... um, 
that was, that was a way that the church leaders sought to, to raise extra funds for the church. I found it sad that, that they would dedicate space within the church of God to, to bringing people's names out for, for people's own glory. And I found it further sadder that I know that this probably actually works really, really well. Uh, not to build the kingdom of God, but to build buildings at least. You say, donate to the building project and, and we're going to write your name on the walls of this church and everyone who walks into this church for the next 20 or 30 years is going to see your name there and say, well, you must be a very holy person. And so it works. People suddenly start to open up their wallets and, and the funds roll in. I did note as I walked through this church and I saw the different windows, there was at least one window in that church to my recollection and it had nothing more than a, than a vague, obscure reference to the donor at the bottom, something that couldn't be traced back. And as I read that, I thought to myself, well, here is one who is given to the glory of God, and they shall receive their reward from God. Now, the problem is far more widespread than just how we give. And that's why Jesus opens with the comprehensive, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For whatever act of righteousness could be done to, to serve our king can also be perverted to serve ourselves. They can be perverted from the noble intention to bring glory to our all-glorious creator and, and demeaned to bring it merely to ourselves. Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of those who gave to be seen, to be giving. If that is why you're giving, to get praises of men, well, that is all you are going to get, Jesus says. Such self-focused action bring you no reward from the Father. And for those who pray merely to be seen to be praying, well, that is their reward. They're not praying to God, but they are performing before men as such, and they will receive the applause of men. Well done. That was such a beautiful prayer. People might say, but that is all the reward that they will get for that prayer, if that's why they've done it. The Lord Almighty won't stoop to listen to such a facade. Those who think fasting is a great way to show everyone else how spiritual they are, those who go the extra effort to make sure that everyone else knows that they are fasting, or for their devotion to seeking the praise of men, they will be rewarded with the praise of men. But heaven is not going to take any notice of that spectacle. The blessings that would otherwise fall for, for righteous, pure worship will not descend from heaven upon them. What is it for you? In what way do you today need to hear the words of Jesus, beware of practicing your righteousness before others? I do believe that this is a very big problem in the church today. Our context is somewhat uh, different to that of the first century context. They had a, a religious culture at large. If you were seen to be pious, you were praised by men. We live in a post-Christian society, but we do most of our living within the community of the church, within the community of God's people. These are the people we spend time with. These are the people... Uh, that we seek encouragement from, that we seek affirmation from, that we sometimes even seek adoration from. And it's in this context that it becomes very easy to act and to dress and to speak and to give in order to get the praises of others rather than men. We can so easily seek the approval of those around us rather than turning our eyes heavenward and seeking the approval that really matters. We have... Very big egos when it comes to it. This is certainly a very big trap for those who are involved in church leadership. 
The more your position demands piety, the more you'll be tempted to play the part. The more other people place expectations on you, the more you'll be tempted to demonstrate, at least externally, that you're meeting those expectations. I want to preach this to myself this morning, but I want to preach this also to those of you who likewise are in leadership or are considering leadership or, or one day will consider leadership. We must be on our guard. We must be very careful that we do not become the 21st century reboot of the worst of first century Pharisaism. Again, Jesus warns, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. What a tragedy it would be to labor your whole life only to realize that you've been laboring for the praises of men and you have already received your reward. That's the first of four warnings that I want to bring this morning. The second is, is for those who participate in any visible ministry. The danger is, is very acute for anyone involved in visible ministry. People will respect you for it. And respect feels good. It's like a narcotic. The more you have, the more you want. What a shame it would be to spend all your life seeking the approval of men. This approval, which will end so abruptly... All the while you've neglected seeking the approval of God, the approval which will echo into eternity after he pronounces those words on your life. Well done, good and faithful servant. The third warning, then, uh, this danger of performing our religious service to gather the approval of our community is indeed a danger for each and every one of us, no matter how we serve. Are you involved in discreet service? I'm worried if you're not involved in doing anything for your faith. Uh, if you're involved, even in this, there's always the opportunity, either in the moment or sometime down the track, to draw attention to yourself, to, to blow your own trumpet, as it, would, as it would be. I remember a few weeks back, I was, I was sitting across from a patient and his wife, quite elderly. I said, the pneumonia seems to be responding to the antibiotics. Oh, good doctor, she interjected. You see, I have something very important on next Tuesday. Well, if it continues like this, we can, we can start to talk about discharge, I said. Oh, good, doctor. See, it is very important what I've got on next Tuesday. We might not be able to make next Tuesday. That's okay, doctor. It'll be easier for me if you're still in hospital next Tuesday. It is very important what I've got on. I continued uh, skating through the, the discussion taking every effort not to open the lid on, on a discussion which I uh, suspected was going to be a very egocentric discussion. Uh, the next day I was pa passing by the patient's room and he was there alone, his wife wasn't there. And he said, Doctor, did you know that my wife has been given an Order of Australia award? She's going down to Brisbane next Tuesday to receive it. No, I didn't know that, I said to him. Oh, that's all right, she wouldn't tell you. See, she wouldn't want people to think she's proud, he said. And inwardly I smiled and I thought to myself, I thought to myself how easily this can be me as well. I thought we can, we can often try and put on a, um, a veneer of modesty while we lead people back to our own merit. I don't want to tell this story this morning to disparage this, this lovely woman who had indeed worked very hard and, and achieved uh, quite a high standard. Um, I did find it interesting that by the time they, they left the ward, uh, quite a few staff members had, had heard this story and, and were spared no shortage of detail. 
but I think this is, this is a tendency within all of us to boast of our achievements. Some of us use a little bit more uh, tact in how we do it. Some of us use a lot less tact in how we do it, I must say. But the point that I want to illustrate is that even your discreet acts of service can still come from a heart that desires the praise of men and your brain can still find a way to get you there. Even in your discreet service, you still need to ask yourself the question, who am I doing this for? And if you find yourself seeking ways to bring it up in conversation or leaving a, a trail of crumbs so that people will follow them and, and stumble across your act of service, that's perhaps an indication that your heart needs some renovation in this respect. So then each one of us is, is not beyond the reach of seeking merely an earthly reward regarding, uh, sorry, regardless of whether we're preaching to a thousand people or we're vacuuming the church after the service. And in each of these three examples, Jesus uh, gives us, sorry, in each of the three examples Jesus gives us, he describes the individual who seeks solely for the acclaim of men, and he describes them as a hypocrite. That is, they're an actor. They're putting on a performance for men, and the applause of men is all that they will receive. On each occasion, however, Jesus offers us wise counsel as to how to keep ourselves from seeking this earthly reward primarily by putting it beyond arm's reach, by taking ourselves out of that temptation. And on each occasion, Jesus promises us that true acts of righteousness done in true service will receive their true reward. Speaking of rewards isn't done much in a religious context these days. I'm, I'm informed that this has um, been going on for the last 200 years and largely in due to the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, a German philosopher, uh, who taught us, and I agree with this, essentially be good for goodness sake. Doing good is its own reward. Do it for itself primarily. I find myself very sympathetic to this logic. This is, this is what I teach my kids. But I'm forced to admit that Jesus actually spoke a lot about rewards. Um, one might ponder that um, it is actually virtuous to desire that which is morally desirable. Now, to put that another way, it's it's, it's virtuous to desire virtue. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But that aside, as we read this passage this morning, we're forced to ask ourselves the question, would we rather seek treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thief break in and steal, or would we rather seek treasure in heaven, free from rot, free from rust, free from robbery, I'd like to take this opportunity to encourage all those here who serve in ways that are never recognised. We don't see who you are. We don't know who you are. But God does. He sees your secret acts of service. And, and you can uh, be sure that they will not go unrewarded if, if that is, they are indeed coming from a, from a humble servant heart that yearns only to serve your king. Um, on that note, I want to share my fourth warning. You see, even those actions taken in complete secrecy are not beyond the perverting influence of our own egos. Why else does Jesus caution us about not letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing? You see, we're so hungry uh, for, for praise. Our egos are so desperate for it. that sometimes we settle and we say, well, it's enough to perform for an audience of one. Not God, that is, but myself. There is a danger that even the hidden acts of service can foster within us 
a secret, a secret pride that will lead only to a haughty spirit where we look down on everyone else. And so Jesus says, do not even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In a sense, we try and hide our acts of righteousness even from ourselves. We certainly shouldn't be gathering them up frequently, bringing them to our own recollection to groom our self-esteem, to consider what a, a great person we are. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, before we move to some concluding thoughts, I feel that I need to add a quick qualification. Uh, what we have here is not an absolute prohibition on practising your righteousness before other people. Indeed, as we saw three weeks ago, we are called to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What we have seen here is a prohibition on practising your righteousness so people see you. Sometimes there are ways that we can act whereby our righteous deeds are seen but we ourselves are invisible. And even when by necessity we are visible, the concern that Jesus has is that we're not motivated by this visibility. We're not serving men, we're truly serving God. We're not craving the praise of men. Jesus didn't discourage prayer and fasting and giving. No, he exhorts his followers to do these things. He prayed publicly. His disciples prayed publicly. His church, both then and now, prays publicly. His church, both then and now, has times of corporate fasting. His church, both then and now, practices generosity. But as it is possible, we practice such things in secret so that we ourselves are guarded from the, the temptation to self-pride. We need to be very aware of the, of the danger that arises out of visible acts of piety. We need to guard our hearts that we might keep our religion from the defilement of our own vainglory. Secrecy itself is not a virtue, but it protects us. It helps to protect us from spiritual hypocrisy. Unfortunately, it's the way of fallen man to continually seek his own honour. And we come into the church and we see him who is worthy of all honour. We see him whose perfect sacrifice has saved our degenerate souls. And what do we do? apart from writing our name on the wall. Before long, we are like the disciples James and John, who even as they're journeying with Jesus to Jerusalem, they are seeking to use their proximity to Jesus for their own glory. They're journeying to Jerusalem where Jesus will pay the ultimate sacrifice for them. And they ask Jesus, when you come in glory, who will sit at your right and your left hand, Jesus? While Jesus is preparing to embrace the humility of the cross that they deserve, they are preparing to embrace the glory of the throne that he deserves. An appreciation of the gospel helps us to see things in their right balance here. We are no more than redeemed sinners seeking to please our beneficent saviour. Jesus elsewhere tells a parable of servants who do what is required of them. When the day is finished, the servants don't hop up on a podium and say, wow, look at me, I am so fantastic, I did what I was supposed to do. No, Jesus explains, they then sit down, they continue serving, and he says that we also, when we have done all that we were commanded, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. A perspective on the gospel brings this to light. One of the most influential forerunners of the modern missionary movement who is deliberately not named today, 
um, became, much to his distaste, quite a hero back in England. On his deathbed, his successor is trying to comfort him by recalling to him all the good things he did, all the achievements he had through his life. And the aged gentleman calls him over a bit closer. Mr Duff, you've been speaking about me. When I am gone, say nothing about me. Speak about my saviour. It's reported those were his last words. And uh, on his tombstone were engraved the words that he had chosen. A wretched, poor and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. That's someone who appreciated the reality of the gospel, the reality of their own depravity, the glory of God and the mercy that we receive from him. So again, I encourage you, as you come to a passage like this, we need to keep the fundamentals of the gospel before our eyes to truly embrace the humility that is only befitting of us, only, only right for us. So in closing, then, I want to ask you that question again. Are you serving Christ? Are you serving for Christ? In chapter 5, Jesus warns us against lust. He warns us against hate. He warns us against divorce and retaliation. And his warning is this. Do not merely abstain from the sinful action, but also from the sinful attitude. And now as you come before him as a disciple, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, as you seek to flee the deeds of unrighteousness, Jesus has a further warning for you. Inasmuch as you must abstain not only from the action, but also the attitude of unrighteousness, so too you must embrace not only the action, but also the attitude of righteousness. The humble attitude which says, this is an act of service which I do only for my king. Jesus has no place for sham religion. The world gives to seek a worldly reward, but, me, uh, but we must remember the words of Colossians 3. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We must set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. We must continually ask ourselves the question, do I speak and act to be seen by others or to please God? Do I grumble or feel shortchanged when my works go unnoticed? Do I practice false modesty, covering my achievements with a veil as though I'm trying to conceal them, trying to be modest, all the while I'm using a veil that is so thin that it's actually transparent? Or do I indeed do acts of secrecy, but only to tally them up? The right hand tells the left hand what it's doing, the left hand tells the right hand what it's doing, and all together at the end of it, I feel right well self-righteous. This is a hard sermon to preach, and, and perhaps it's a hard sermon to hear. But I'm convicted that God, through his word today, is calling us to deeper discipleship, to truer forms of service, to a pure form of worship. What a blessing it is to be confronted by the words of Scripture. Finally, church, I want to encourage us on two accounts. First, while we're all prone to impure motives, I do hope that we are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus who practiced selflessness. I know that I myself have been the recipient of acts of kindness and generosity done completely anonymously, and I want to thank the people who did them for me, and I can't. I don't know who they are, and so all I can do is thank God, and I assume that's how they wanted it to be. Truly only God can tell, but, but I hope that we are, as a church, embracing this passage. We are practicing this passage. I'm encouraged by that. 
And secondly, I want to encourage you and myself that while we all still have a ways to go, I believe that Christ is at work in us. He is transforming us. He is enabling us. He is sufficient. And he can do this work in us. So devote yourselves to secret devotion to the Lord. Practice your piety in the hidden intimacy of his presence. Set your eyes on him. Set your eyes above and not on what the right hand or the left hand is doing. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Let us close in prayer. Our Father, in the Psalms we read, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. And even as we are confronted now with the words of Jesus, with standards we cannot attain, we're also comforted by the promise of grace so undeserved. Even as we aspire to live out the beautiful righteousness that we discover in Christ, Lord, bring us always to the cross, to the fountain of your grace, so that we might not despair. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Amen.